Alrighty, so good to have you with us uh, again, and uh, we're here and ready to go. Stan Fainzelberg, courtesy of Sam Firu to Mark and LLP, the most positively reviewed law firm in this country. How about that? You want to reach out to Stan anytime uh, when he's doing his thing, helping people, 1-855-821-5900. Help at employmentlawyer.ca is the email address we're going to use, and uh, I'll give you more details on that in a sec why that's important. And then pocketemploymentlawyer.ca. That website is absolutely free, absolutely anonymous. There's so much learning to be done, and it's all to the benefit of you and your work life, dealing with your employer and your boss, etc. You want to go to pocketemploymentlawyer.ca. And as you know, by now, if you've heard this show even one time, you'll realize that the severance pay calculator is now rolled into pocketemploymentlawyer.ca. Why is that good? Well, 2 million people could tell you why. That's how many people have used Pocket Employment Lawyer to use a severance pay calculator and figured out exactly what their entitlements should be. This isn't just a number pulled out of the sky. It's based on history and based on what people are actually owed. Again, severance pay calculator available at pocketemploymentlawyer.ca. But we'll get to all that and the emails. We're going to go through a ton of those today. That's why I mentioned that. Help at employmentlawyer.ca. So, Stan, let it, uh, let's get it rolling. Brother, what do you got off the hop for us? Absolutely, John. And hello to all our listeners. So, starting off, uh, you know, to do the week that was, I want to talk about the current trend that I'm seeing around specifically vaccine mandates and a lot of high profile institutions that have in the last several weeks started to remove and lift those mandates and started actually bringing a lot of people they've you know, put at least on unpaid leave back to work. And so, you know, if, you, if you've seen in the newspaper in the last couple of weeks, first of all, the TDSB has officially lifted its mandate as of March 14th. Uh, as as well has the Ontario government given the go-ahead for all long-term care homes to lift their mandates for employees as of March 14th. Wow. And, and even more recently, John, the Ontario Public Service, which is one of the largest employers in Ontario, has just announced that they're going to lift their mandate for uh, all employees or most employees as of April 4th. And these are significant trends continuing, you know, what we've seen in the last month of, of a, the province opening up. And really, these are trends, I think, are starting to un- significantly undercut to the extent that there was logic for these mandates. They're undercutting a lot of the reasoning that employers are using and, and putting a lot of employers who continue to maintain these mandates at risk of having a lot of lawsuits come down the pipeline. So most of what employers have been arguing, John, when it comes to these mandates is that, you know, we are required to do them under the Occupational Health and Safety Act, saying that we have a legal obligation to take every reasonable step to maintain a safe workplace. Mm -hmm. Uh, The problem that I found in my practice, John, is that employers are doing this in a very generalized way. They're not tailoring these mandates to the individual circumstances of their workforce. You know, for example, many of these mandates have been applied to people who work entirely remotely and have been doing a remote work for at least the last two years. Right. And the immediate question that's going to get asked by any judge in court is, tell me how a, a vaccine <laughs> mandate makes uh, the job or the workplace safer when the person who's actually working there isn't working around anyone. How can they you know, make increase the risk for their colleagues when those colleagues are only seeing them or interacting with them through a computer screen? So those have always been problematic from my view, John. But now that we see all these major institutions one by one dropping these mandates, 
that's not necessarily a trend that I'm seeing when it comes to a lot of private smaller companies uh, that haven't followed kind of dropping these mandates and still maintaining the, the policies and keeping their workforce basically on unpaid leave. And, and I, I just wanted to point out that there's employers really need to start reevaluating their policies to make sure that they align with the current uh, best practices and yeah. the current trends that are happening throughout the province because it becomes really difficult, as you can imagine, to argue that this is a safety issue when we've got you know, thousands and thousands of employees and thousands of employers who are lifting these mandates. And certainly I haven't been aware of any enforcement actions being taken by the, the institution actually governs the, uh, the Occupational Health and Safety Act and enforces that act, which is the Ministry of Labor, you know, to the extent that you would expect there to be safety concerns around this, you would expect that the ministry would be the one enforcing those safety concerns. So again, going back to just the idea that employers really need to reevaluate these policies. And if you have employees who are still on unpaid leave, you need to really consider bringing them back at this point because you can't just keep them out indefinitely uh, to the extent that you could have, you know, ever put them on an unpaid leave to begin with, which, you know, was always a very dubious claim from our perspective. Um, as I say, many people have been working remotely from home who have been subject to these policies and employers are really stepping into what I think is just a gigantic amount of liability and a lot of potential lawsuits coming down the pipeline. Again, if there's any uh, you know discrepancy, if you're not quite understanding, if it if it affects you, what Stan is talking about, you can always reach out to him anytime. That's one eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. Going to get into a ton of emails here. First, got a uh, quick call, Mastery. Hello, uh, good, uh, there you are. I think you're there. Hi, Mastery. Hello. Sorry. There you are. <laughs> and we're back. What's going on? How are you? Um, I'm good. I, good. I, mean, I have a quick question. It may sure. be somewhat irrelevant. Um, I did. Um, I actually did get approved for long-term disability in uh, February. Okay. Um, at the same time, I did sign off on a release that said income declaration and reimbursement, um, and I thought it was because I'm not getting other in- any other income. They're now asking me, because I'm eligible still, to apply for CPP disability. Mm-hmm. Is that mm-hmm. normal? Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty standard. If you actually re- read over the contents of your disability policy, most of what these policies say is it includes a provision that says if you qualify for disability payment with us, then you're required to apply for something like CPP or ODSP uh, disability. Because, so essentially that if you do qualify, they get that offset. Uh, of it's course. just a built-in mechanism into the policy. Again, another way that insurance companies make sure that they're know keeping every penny that they can uh, in yes, my view. Yes. so yeah it's it's not unusual in any way uh, and if you do ultimately qualify it's just it's not unfortunately going to end up with m- more money for you it's just going to be a rebalancing about between who pays you that money yeah well I mean the CPP disability is taxable but my LTD is not so I can see to their advantage um, okay yeah, yeah. I, th- I think Stan, I think it's it's interesting, and I think Stan will probably uh, back 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 you up on this or back me up on this. I think it's number one. Even if you don't apply mastery, they're going to estimate what you would have received from CPP, so the insurance company will go ahead and do that. Number two, arguably, Stan, I think you'll agree, mm-hmm. CPP is actually a tougher test than qualifying for your own LTD. So if CPP approves you, it's going to be pretty hard in the future, or at least more difficult 
for your insurance company to back off and say you no longer qualify because you've been approved by CPP, right. which, as right. I said, is arguably a tougher test. So there's really no yeah. there's really no negative for you in applying because you're going to okay. have to anyway, right? Right. Okay. And you could, by not applying, also disqualify yourself under the policy because again, the yeah. policy requires you to do it. So you know, to the extent that they're making you know asking you to do this, just under, undertake the steps, fill out the paperwork. It might be a bit of a long process, unfortunately. I'm sure you have more important well, things to deal with that, being on disability, but exactly. yeah. and that's what I yeah. told them because I am eligible actually to re to retire in the end of September. So I said to them, I didn't see the point of doing this because they take a good four months to even look at it. But they want to do the appeal and everything, like they want to take it over. Well, so retirement is slightly different, and again. It's you have to look at the terms of the policy, but just because you start earning retirement income, that actually may not have the same offset effect right. as, as the CPP disability income would. And that's probably why they're forcing you to undergo that process. And if I do decide to go for CPP, like retirement, it doesn't affect me doing the disability or shouldn't, right? Again, you have to look at the terms of the policy. Okay. And this is important when it comes to disability policies in general. They are different. They're not uniform across uh, across all different companies. And it, the policy is a contract at the end of the day, and whatever that contract says governs the terms of your disability benefits. So you have to really look at the, the terms of that policy and try to ascertain what it means for you. Okay. Okay. Thank you. All right. You bet. Thank you so much for uh, for calling in today. We appreciate the call. It's interesting. And a quick side uh, side note to all this, and I guess Mastery's call was a perfect time to mention that. Not only does, uh, you know, Stan, your firm, Stan Fury to Mark, and take care of employment law, but the other half of the hallway also deals with disability law, which is interesting because right there is a perfect example of how much interplay there is between uh, employment and disability when it comes to dealing with insurance companies. So it's kind of a one-two punch, and they, uh, you guys got it covered for sure. If you if you don't know what's going on, you'll pass it off to one of your colleagues on the disability side and vice versa. So that's... Uh that's kind of handy, but uh, but 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 good to keep abreast on all the uh, all the ins and outs of, of both for sure. So so well answered, sir. Uh, I want to get to some emails here in just a bit, but uh, a short break is upon us, and you want to reach out in the meantime. Any other time to stand, feel free to do so. One eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. Help at employmentlawyer.ca, and we'll continue with the employment law show. Alrighty, thanks for uh, thanks for hanging in. We're back. Stan Fainzelberg is your guy. Sam Firu to Markin LLP. You want to reach out anytime to Stan and his team, if only for a chat and get some clarity on what we talk about here on the show every week. It's one eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. Help at employmentlawyer.ca and the free and anonymous website pocketemploymentlawyer.ca as well. Okay, first email for the uh, for the day, brother, comes from Monique. Simply ask Stan, can I ask my employer to pay me instead of taking vacation? Generally speaking, it's up to the employer. They get to make the ultimate decision, John, when it comes to vacation in terms of whether you know, you're going to get paid out or, whether you, or when you take that vacation. Now, so essentially, you don't have a right to ask for the money. If your employer says, no, you know, you're taking two weeks and they can even tell you when you're taking those two weeks, uh, there's not much option there. However, in the opposite direction, if you ask for time off, they actually do have to provide you with time off. They can't just pay you and say, no, you get no vacation time. So, Monique, the answer ultimately is that, no, you can't necessarily, you, I mean, you can ask the employer for vacation pay instead of taking the time. It's up to them to determine whether they want to give that to you ultimately. 
Another email. Next one comes from uh, Charlene. This one is a big bowl of wrong. She says, my employer of the last 37 years told me he's retiring and shutting down the business completely at the end of the month. He told me I am not entitled to anything because I'm over the age of 65. Is that true? Well, first, firstly, just generally, I would say no. That's absolutely not true. And I think what you know, what Charlene is uh, is getting confused here, and what a lot of people get confused is the difference between a company going out of business and a company going bankrupt. Just because a company is going out of business or shutting down doesn't mean they don't have the money to pay you, and certainly doesn't mean they don't have the liability to pay you what you're owed. You know, shutting down a business is ultimately a form of terminating your employment. Uh, the, the main difference to keep in mind, though, is that if a company is going bankrupt or if a company is entering credit protection, that's a different situation. That, that literally means that the company may not have the assets or money to, pay, to satisfy its liabilities to its creditors, of which you are just one of probably many in that situation. Yeah. And, and that's the main distinction here. If a company is legitimately going bankrupt, then I would tell Charlene, unfortunately, yeah, you're pro- you know, your employer's probably right. He doesn't owe you anything because, or to the extent he owes you anything, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be divvied up by the trust bankruptcy trustee in, in satisfaction of you and many other creditors who are fall- fighting over a small piece of pie. Uh, but if your employer's just saying, no, I'm retiring and I'm shutting down the business because I don't want to keep working, not because I can't keep working or the business is not profitable or going bankrupt then that doesn't mean he gets to escape liability to you. Yeah, it doesn't say anywhere in the email, but uh, based on, you know, past calls and emails we've had, 37 years, retiring, says he doesn't know anything. I'm smelling a doctor. But uh, you never know. They're, <laughs> they're generally not good at that thing. It's, it's it, you know, generally, them and car dealers, great people, amazing at what they do, but when it comes to severance and knowing what to do, ooh. Get a little grim, well, but, uh, like, like a lot of professionals, John, I find that people who uh, act in, who are in the professional class tend to over overvalue their knowledge because they're very knowledgeable in one particular area, but right. they also seem to think that they're knowledgeable in many other areas as a result, and that uh, and that's how you get in a lot of trouble. You bet. Michael's up next says, hey, Stan, my company found out I have a second job and is upset because they think I'm not devoting myself to the company. My second job is completely unrelated to my job with the company, and I don't think it interferes with my work in any way. Can they terminate me for cause for having a second job? So the important, uh, I think the most important aspect of Michael's question here is that is to highlight the fact that he's saying, can they terminate me for cause? Yeah. Yeah, because as we know, John, I mean, ultimately, if they, they can terminate you, they can terminate you at almost any time as long as they pay you a fair severance. And whether they can terminate you for cause, you have to look back at the employment uh, contract to see is there any language there that speaks to what basically the company is saying now, that he has to devote his full time to the company and he can't work anywhere else, usually what we call like a conflict of interest provision. Or to the extent that you know there's even a question of a conflict of interest, a lot of these contracts, what they'll say is, come to us first, disclose the information, tell us where you're working or want to work, presumably, and then we will tell you whether we approve or not. So if he has a provision like that in his contract, then very likely Michael's in breach of contract, and yeah, he, he could very likely be terminated for cause. If there is nothing like that in a written contract, or certainly in a even if it's in a policy, John, but he's never seen that policy, let's say, then that doesn't apply to Michael in this situation. You know, they have to tell you these things before, you know, before the issues come up. 
or and make sure that you're subject to these provisions before the issues come up. If you've already had the job and they're just upset because they think you're not working hard enough, well, they should have put it in a contract. If it's not in that contract and you have no restriction like that on your employment and you're free to go and work for uh, another job. Again, I mean, within reason, even if it's not in a contract, obviously you can't go work for a direct competitor where that, where the knowledge you're, or you have from company A is going to work for company B is directly going to undermine company A. That's always kind of an implied term of good faith and duty, if it, uh, fiduciary duty in, in some instances. But otherwise, if you're just going to work for an unrelated company or you're starting, starting some sort of side hustle, it's not going to matter. Those are You have a right to do that unless there's a covenant in a contract that prohibits you from doing it. Yeah, it's always referring to that contract, right? But, uh, you know, traverse that, uh, you know, carefully. And maybe is it a good idea to reach out to the first employer and say, hey, this is, you know, I have proof that this is not going to interfere with what I'm doing for you, but uh, it's a side hustle for a little extra coin and, and maybe lay out what your plan is? You know, it, it's. I always find you have to be a bit strategic because even if a company, even if companies see, okay, yeah, this has nothing to do with our business, sometimes they're just not going to be reasonable anyway. And... You really have to think about what your goals are, I guess I would say. It, ultimately, if it's not interfering with your job, if you don't think the company is going to uh, find out about it, you may be better off just not disclosing. And if they choose to act irrationally and terminate your employment, that probably speaks more to the employer uh, than it does to you and your situation. Yeah. Like, disclosure would be, you know, in, in, the, in, in the best scenario, I agree with you, John, you want to disclose if you have that type of relationship with your employer, if you think they're going to act rationally and act in good faith, absolutely. Talk to them like a human being and have a conversation. But a lot of times you're not dealing with one person. You're dealing with an HR company, a department in a thousand person company, and they're not going to necessarily see things the way an individual might. Yeah. Again, reaching out these emails, you want to send one along anytime, not only for the show, help at employmentlawyer.ca and reach Stan anytime, one 821 5900 Okay, where are we down the list? Uh, Zoya, up next, says, I've been working as a contractor for the last four and a half years for uh, one employer. After listening to your show, I realize that I'm really an employee at law. Am I entitled to vacation and statutory holiday pay for the years I was mischaracterized as a contractor? Well, Absolutely. If you can go in to court and prove that you were an employee the whole time and that they've been mischaracterizing you, then you're entitled to the same things as any other employee in that situation. And even though, and oftentimes the issue becomes here, John, not whether you're entitled to it, but how far back you can yeah. go. Because we've got this Statute of Limitations Act in Ontario that says you can only go back two years uh, to enforce your rights. But the caveat there is from either when the action, you know, from when the damages occurred or from when you discovered the damages to have occurred. And situations like this, like Zoya's, where you don't realize you're an employee until you do, there's a good argument to say, well, I, I didn't know I was entitled to it until I spoke to Stan and San Fierro to Markin. And he told me that I was mm -hmm. now called his uh, vacation uh, statutory holiday pay. So that's when my two years should run from. And, and there's case law that supports that, not just when it comes to statutory holiday pay and vacation pay, but even overtime, John. If you qualify for overtime and you were never paid that overtime, you can go back and make a, a claim for it many years back, you know, certainly, and even further back than the two-year mark, 
as long as you can show that you genuinely did re uh, recognize you had a, a cause of action until until now. You know, Pierre raises a good question in email. He says, do I have to accept overtime if my employer asks me to work the extra hours? Uh, no, actually, you don't have to accept overtime, again, unless there's a contract in which you've already agreed to it. Nobody's required to work more than 44 hours, and, and there's actually a, a, a limit of 48 hours where if they want you to work more than that, they need your written consent. So, no, you don't have to accept overtime because just thinking in contractual terms, usually when you accept a job, you're accepting certain hours. Those hours usually do not include overtime hours unless it's specified. And if they're asking you now to work overtime, despite the fact that you haven't, that's a, that's a change to the contract and you don't have to agree that change. What if it's the other way around? What if Pierre's in a situation like you mentioned before where he's had to work overtime to get the gig done? I mean, even maybe to a point where the employer's like, please don't work our overtime, and he does it anyway because he's got to get the job done. Do they still have to allow him to do it, or at least do they still have to pay him for that overtime? Well, that's actually a very hot button and interesting issue that's uh, recently come before the Court of Appeal in Ontario, John, in the context of uh, CIBC in which the Court of Appeals basically said that even if you don't have to basically allow allow them to do, but the CIBC had a policy that said if you, can't, if you uh, want need to work overtime, you need to get approval first. And what the court essentially said in that situation is, no, it's, you know, if CIBC is giving you so much work that you can't finish it within the allotted time, then they need to recognize that and recognize that overtime is going to be generated and they lost that case and it's a huge class action which there, there's going to be significant damages as a result but that was kind of the ultimate uh, the decision coming down from the court of appeal that it's not a question of whether your employer lets you work the overtime or sorry it, it approves the overtime it's whether they know you're doing it or providing so much work that there is no alternative to it and in that situation even if your employer turns around and says, no, stop working the overtime, we, you know, we need to cut down your hours, but they don't actually cut down your workload, you're still entitled to the overtime pay. Yeah, it's interesting. Again, always reach out to Stan if you have any uh, questions or if you're confused by any of this, uh, one 821 Let's get to uh, Marnie quickly before a break. Still got a couple minutes. Uh, again, email help at employmentlawyer.ca. And uh, Marty says, how many weeks of vacation pay are people entitled to in Ontario? So generally, people are entitled to three weeks, uh, sorry, two weeks of vacation. However, after five years, you get a bump up. And this is a, the minimum in time, just to be clear. But you get a bump up to three weeks of vacation. Of course, if parties want to negotiate for something more than that, four or five, six weeks, whatever that case may be, you're free to do so, but those are the minimums under which an employer can simply never give you less than that. Got time for James? Yeah, sure we do. As we roll on down the list of emails that are coming in, James says, uh, hey, Stan, I just started working for a new company. I've been asking them to provide me with an employment contract for the last two weeks, but the HR person keeps putting this off. Do they have to provide me with an employment contract? Well, James, I would tell you that not only do they not have to provide you with an employment contract, you should stop asking for yeah, uh, totally. this is this is a, something that employees get confused with all the time, John, where they think that they, you know, they need it in writing. And from an employee's perspective, your best case scenario is to have 
no written contract. Because in that situation, the common law will imply the terms of your contract, or at least the important terms of the contract. And those tend to be significantly more favorable than what is likely going to be found in a written document. Right. So what I tell James is stop asking for one. And frankly, even if he got a contract at this point, you know, he's been working there for two weeks already. He obviously has agreed to the, the job. He's obviously agreed to most of the terms or the parties have agreed to most of the terms, like how much money he's going to make, what he's going to do there, what are his hours, etc. So even if they provide him with a contract at this point, even if he signed that, unless they gave him something more, that contract's not going to be enforceable because he's already got the job. So what did they give him to sign the contract? Right. Yeah, it's interesting because people don't realize that, you know, without that contract, you start with a, uh, you know, with a full quiver of employment law rights, but you can give them away with a contract. More details than that in just uh, just a minute here. And your emails, keep them coming. Yeah, help at employmentlawyer.ca. We'll continue. Stan Fanselberg is your guy again today right here with more of the Employment Law Show. And right back into it, email show today. And how do you do that? Uh, help at employmentlawyer.ca. By the way, reaching out to Mr. Fainzelberg. Stan, the man, always here helping you out. one 821 He is all part and partner of Sanfiru Tamarkin, LLP, the most positively reviewed law firm over this entire country. So you can uh, you can check that out anytime. Again, one 821 5,900 to reach out when the show is done. Just uh, before we get into uh, Stephen's call, he's uh, he's standing by. Yeah, about that employment contract. And, you know, to further your point, Stan, mm-hmm. if you are already working for a company, could be uh, two months in, two years, two decades in, and they slide a new employment contract across the table, said, oh, I just, everything's good. Would you just mind signing this uh, for us as we move forward? We're just, we're just rejigging some things. you got to be careful of that, right? Absolutely. You know, you have to question why they're doing it at this point. Yeah. Um, usually it's because they've talked to a lawyer and the lawyers told them, Hey, you have a lot of liability and you got to get these in place. Uh, so absolutely. If you, if somebody after several years of working there puts an employment contract to you and says, please sign this, even if they're offering you money, even if they're you know saying, Oh, I'll give you a thousand dollar bonus out of, out of the goodness of my heart. You should question it even more. That's the time to have that contract reviewed. Pay a few, you know, pay a few bucks, have a lawyer, speak to a lawyer, and really understand what it is that you're giving up, usually. Yeah, and if you feel like doing that before you sign it, just say, yeah, I need a, I need a day or two to have this. Uh, just I want to have a look at it. Send it to Stan. Send it to Stan as soon as you can and have a look. It's almost guaranteed there's going to be things in there you do not want to uh, to follow through with for sure. But, again, help at employmentlawyer.ca. And as promised, Stephen, thanks so much for standing by. How are you? Good. How are you? Good, brother. What's uh, what's your question? So this is a little bit complex, um, uh-huh. and I'll try to do the Coles Notes version of this. So I'm, a <laughs> I'm a sales executive in, in the technology field uh, for a company here in who's headquartered in Montreal now, but uh, was headquartered in Toronto. This transaction took place in May of 2021. Um, now I'm part of the new company. Uh, I can I know for sure from uh, from a sales executive salary point standpoint, my salary is probably higher, 30 to 40% higher than their existing legacy sales executive. Okay. Um, As of January, as of March 18th, 2022, I just received my quota letter. So in comparison from last year to this year, my quota has increased by 140%. Mm -hmm. Um, 
At the same time, my commission rates have decreased by 140%. They've just given me a performance improvement plan letter, and we haven't even started, we haven't even finished the first, well, we finished the first quarter last week, well, yesterday, right? Mm -hmm. So the question is, um, is this, is this, this sounds like I'm being set up for failure. Um, and it could be, I, I'm thinking this could be like, I, it's not even fair. It seems like wrongful dismissal, but is this something that they could possibly do? Put me in a performance improvement plan with an expiry date of June 30th, if I don't hit the metrics that they set forth? Well, so, yeah, well, Stephen, what it looks like, and I, you know, usually when these PIPs get put in place, and for no reason that you can tell, that usually does sound like they're setting you up in some way or another. The real question is whether they're setting you up to let you go for cause, or whether they're setting you up just to, to paper over your termination and justify it with the intention of paying you out. But the, but the other issue that's going to happen, if, even if they do want to pay you out at the end uh, of this PIP in June, they're going to calculate on the basis of your new commission rate. And the fact that you're telling me that changing your commission rate and changing your uh, your quotas in a way that I'm assuming is extremely de detrimental to your uh, earning potential. Extremely. Yeah, so that in and of itself is the constructive dismissal. That's the termination. They are fundamentally changing the terms of your employment agreement, and they're in a way that is obviously, again, extremely detrimental to you, and in a way that they're not allowed to do that. So there's two options that you really have at this point. Let's put aside the PIP because I think that's the, the, the lesser issue. There's two options you have right now. You can either say these changes are a termination right now and I'm not accepting them, I'm walking away and you owe me a severance now. Or you can, t you can basically uh, push back on them, say, well, I think this is going to be a huge decrease, but I'm willing to test it out to see what happens over the next month or two. And that, that way you preserve your right to claim constructive dismissal while still going through this process and really seeing how it plays out. Okay. Makes sense? Makes sense. I do have a follow-up question. Yeah, go they for it. They've asked me to sign the performance improvement plan. Yeah. Um, is that – I've spoken to HR about this, and they said that if I don't sign it, 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 is, it does not reflect – it's not an immediate dismissal. Um, is, is, that, is that true? Yeah, uh, it, the performance improvement plan is ultimately a subjective document that's created by the company, and whether you agree to it or not, they're going to impose it. So you don't have to sign it, but you signing it certainly doesn't imply anything, especially okay. if you're protesting the changes, especially if you're sending them emails saying, I disagree with this. A, a lot, you know, in terms of the FIP for one second, what you want to ensure you're doing throughout this time is you want to ensure that you're getting written documentation about why you disagree with it and where that PIP is, you know, I'm assuming has issues that you that are not accurate. Because most of these PIPs that I've seen create, you know, say, oh, you know, very vague things like your customer service skills are not great or, you know, leadership skills or things that are so entirely get subjective and vague that become very difficult to, to rebut. And that's what you want to do. You want to rebut what they're asserting in written documentation because if, for whatever, you know, if they're dumb enough to actually try to assert cause at the end of this thing in June, you'll have the evidence to say, no, I told you all along you're wrong. And, and now I've got the written documentation I can bring with me to court to prove it. Okay, perfect. Because I have been uh, saving everything via Smart. email correspondence. 
Awesome. Yeah, awesome. All right, Steve, let us know uh, what happens with that uh, moving forward. You can always reach out to Stan, by the way, for more details. How do you do that? Easy. one 821 5900. Let's take a, a short break. Final one till we get the rest of the show in there. You want to send an email along. We'll get back to where? Oh, we're at Bill. Bill is next. Bill, thank you so much for sending that. We'll get to that in a moment. And you can as well. Help at employmentlawyer.ca. That's how we roll. More employment law shows coming. All right, let's keep it going here. Stan Fanselberg, again, your guy uh, during the show and otherwise reach out to Stan and his team, always ready to, uh, to help and give you some insight and, uh, guide you to what you should do as far as problems with the workplace, your boss, employer, or employee. You can go ahead and do that anytime. one 821 5900 want to remind you that pocketemploymentlawyer.ca is a good place to start as well. Even before the phone call, go there. It is full of information about what we talk about on this show every week, so you can go there. And the severance pay calculator is also at pocketemploymentlawyer.ca. But emails, help at employmentlawyer.ca is what we're focused on this morning. Try to cut down on the size of that inbox. Bill, thank you so much for hanging on. Thank you for the email. It says, hey, Stan, my boss told me that things are slow and he might need to lay me off. I've not been laid off before, and I know this is how he likes to get rid of people from the company. What can I do in this situation? So, Bill, the first thing you, you need to do, just like in a lot of situations, is to look at your employment contract to first to see if there's any clause in there that speaks to the employer's right to lay you off. Assuming you don't have a contract or assuming there isn't anything like that in your contract, uh, and as you mentioned, the fact that he has never laid you off in the past and therefore you've never given that, him the authority to do it, then the reality is that the employer can't lay you off. Just because the you know the Employment Standards Act has these layoff provisions doesn't mean that they apply to you. And a layoff in in those terms is a constructive dismissal. It's a fundamental change to the employment contract, in which case, in this case being, you know, your hours and, and pay going from 40 uh, and 100% to zero. Uh, and that's pretty clearly a fundamental change and a very clear breach of the contract. And you can choose to act on that change and treat it as if it were a constructive dismissal, a termination, and tell your employer, now I want my severance pay. And that's how you do that, Bill. Again, reaching out if you're confused or a little intimidated by the entire thing. One eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. Down to Lang. Lang says my boss is saying I have to take a vacation by the end of the year, but I would prefer to carry over my vacation to next year or be paid out uh, for it. it uh, uh, be paid out for it. Can my boss tell me when I have to take my vacation? This answer might surprise people. Yeah, just uh, just as we were dealing with Monique's question earlier, this is very much along the same lines. And the reality is that your the employer does get to dictate when you take vacation. Um, you know, if you if most people think about this, they kind of inherently already know that because we think about it in, in the context of Christmas and you know closing over Christmas for a lot of businesses or schools and how they tell their employees, the teachers, exactly when they're taking time off, you would you would see that and already you already know that employers have this right to tell you when they, to take your vacation. So unfortunately, Bill, you know, it's not up to you. It's oh sorry, Lang, it's not up to you, it's up to them. Thanks, Lang. Appreciate that. Jane, going on down the line, says, I confronted my manager about a discrepancy in my pay, and they told me that I am wrong and don't know what I'm talking about. What can I do about this? So I think that 
you know, the first question is how big of a discrepancy we're talking about. Because if it's a large discrepancy, if you're getting into, you know, 10% plus, that kind of gets into the constructive dismissal territory. But if we're talking about a smaller discrepancy where you're not necessarily willing to walk away from your job over it, uh, then you still do have options in that situation. And your option is to go to the Ministry of Labor and file a wage complaint. Uh, the ministry will then come in, they will ask for your employer's books, they will make them provide the rationale for what, you know, what their position is, and they will make the determination. Whatever the ministry says, that's basically going to be the answer. So uh, I would tell you that, you know, if, you're, if it's something you don't want to necessarily walk away from your job over, the Ministry of Labor is a perfectly great uh, avenue for you here to, to look into this and to hopefully get that discrepancy remedied. Tony's got an interesting uh, question, monetary question, actually. He says, having had received a recent severance, would I still or would I be able to apply for EI without any penalties or clawbacks? Yeah, that's a, it's a very good question. And actually, is the answer right now is different than in almost every other circumstance. In, in, almost, in most circumstances, outside the pandemic or context, uh, the answer is that you can't collect EI and severance at the same time. What usually right. happens is that on your record of employment, your employer will sp specify this is how much money you got in terms of pay in lieu of notice, and then EI will do its calculations and say, okay, you're, you know, this money represents X amount of weeks, and therefore you're not eligible for EI until that X amount of weeks uh, elapses. However, the, because of the pandemic, the government changed the rules around EI basically for the last couple of years now, uh, basically saying that this offset doesn't apply right now. Uh, and this continues to not apply until September of this year, unless they change the rules again. That's when that, right. that provision is scheduled to lapse and when the, you know, the default rules are going to come back into place. But at least as it relates to right now, Tony, you don't have to worry about any penalties or clawbacks because that offset isn't happening with your severance. Rebecca's email is interesting here, Stan. I think the employer's been under a rock or pinned under something heavy for a little bit. But uh, Rebecca says, my employer is forcing us to either get vaccinated or do testing twice a week or we'll be terminated. I do not want to do either. And I feel this is a breach of my privacy. Is this correct? Is this legal? The one, you know, the one thing we have to remember here, John, is it's very much contextual when it comes to these oh. things. So without really knowing where Rebecca works, it's hard to answer that question because it could be appropriate in, in certain settings to require you know, this either or. Again, they're at least giving the option for testing. And in, a lot of, in a lot of ways, I think that is kind of the middle ground between you know, the, the two positions that a lot of people have taken between mandatory vaccination and I don't want to get vaccinated, period, for any reason. Uh, testing does become kind of that inherent middle ground that I think courts will reflect and reflexively be drawn to to find a compromise. But if it's if it doesn't really create have much rationale, like let's say Rebecca works entirely from home, there's no re, you know nobody's forcing her to go back, no plans to open up the office again. Mm -hmm. uh, then the question is going to be, well, why is this necessary? What what safety concerns are being addressed by having Rebecca? undergo testing twice a week from her home. Again, these these are very individually you know, important. Uh, the context is very important individually here. And you have to look at the, 
facts of each situation to determine what the right answer is, because the right answer is not going to be the same for Rebecca as it is for Bob or Bill. And doesn't it kind of go? I know we got to wrap it up here in a minute, but doesn't it kind of go back to what you said earlier in the show off the uh, at the beginning? Is the yeah. fact that even if she says no, the employer can still let her go, but they have to do that with full severance. It's it's it's, it's the way it would have to happen. It's not it's not cause if she refuses, right? Uh, uh, from my point of view, absolutely. Again, depending on the context of her job, you know, uh, every if, if there's one thing our listeners take from the show and that they need to remember, and uh, you know, for all time, really, it's that nobody has a safety uh, or guaranteed job. You know, an employer can let you go at any time. They can let their best employees go and keep their worst because at the end of the day, a court is never going to tell a company how to run its business that way. Right. A company wants to run its business into the ground. That's not for the court to determine, but they they do have to give you a fair severance, and that's where these battles often are fought. And gotcha. you gotta make sure that you're getting what you're worth here. So if you're not, give us a call. Done for another day, Stan. Thank you so much. Awesome as always, pal. You want to reach out to Stan now? Here's how you do it: one eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. Simple email: help at employmentlawyer.ca. And that website so useful with the severance pay calculator baked into it. That would be pocketemploymentlawyer.ca. We'll catch you next time. Employment Law Show.